0: Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book
0: served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond.
2: Ready go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the Penix and Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is that mendacious bard, Jeff Goat. hand me my harp and uh we are very honored to be rejoined by becky Anderson of black armada games uh designer of lovecraft-esque and upcoming kickstarter can you give us the title of that upcoming kickstarter which will be in the past by?
2: (laughs) It, it will be in the past by the time people listen to it but it's wreck this deck which is a game of demon summoning and deck crafting
0: very cool, and I, I assume there will be some sort of pre-order system set up after yeah. uh, after the Kickstarter. So be on the be on the lookout for that game. Um, and this week we'll be reading uh, Lloyd Alexander's The Book of Three. But before we get into that, Becky, what have you been up to since we last caught up with you? That's been almost two years now, right?
2: Yeah, that's a huge amount of time. So I changed career in that time, and I now work for an NGO instead of being a lawyer, um, and done lots more gaming with um my family and my friends my children have both got to the age now where they can really play a decent board game and i can't tell you how beautiful and brilliant it is to have finally kind of made it to this stage it's just the best thing ever um, so that's been absolutely amazing and then as a family we all took up martial arts just out of nowhere oh. it's never anything oh. that i thought i would ever do in my life and now All four of us, from the six-year-old and the nine-year-old and me, and obviously Josh, who's also Black Armada, we're now training in
0: martial arts four hours or more a week. Oh, lovely. What what kind of martial art are you working on?
2: So we do mixed martial arts, but it's got quite a lot of BJJ in it. Oh, wow. So
0: cranking heads, cranking (laughs) limbs. (laughs) Mostly my head, I think. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Terrific. And um, have you um, read anything lately or seen anything lately that you think would be terrific for for our listeners to to look into?
2: Oh, man. Well, I have, actually, as it happens. I, I know this is going to sound really weird, and I know that I'm completely behind the curve on this, so I do apologize to all of your listeners who have probably already read all of these books already. But recently, a good friend put me on to Dan Abnett's um, Eisenhorn and, and Ravenor books in the Warhammer 40k universe. Now, I have to kind of preface this with saying I've played a lot of the role-playing game, Dark Heresy, played that for six years and I really enjoyed it, um, but I've never played the war game. And, and but although I've obviously, I love watching people painting the minis because there's so much huge talent there. And I'd never thought of reading the books because I think as someone who is no stranger to reading and loving trashy fiction, and so I'm not, I do not mean this in kind of a, a negative way. I kind of felt it was probably a bit of a, a pulpy step too far for me. And mm-hmm. a friend of mine was like, no, 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 Dan Abnett's uh, Warhammer 40k novels. They're really, really good. And I was like, all right, okay. You know, I read fast. I read a lot of books in a year. I can I can read another one. What's that? So I picked up the first one, uh, the first Eisenhorn book, and I was just blown away. I was like, but this is this is really really good it's incredibly well written and really well really great characters and really well realized so yeah i think that my my answer to your question is really less about everyone should go out and read eisenhorn and and all of dan abnett's warhammer 40k books and more to sort of say i had really um put those in a, a bucket of books that i don't read and i was completely wrong to do that and now i've i've read absolutely tons of them and so it's really just kind of opening up your mind and thinking oh i've never read that but maybe you should because you might discover something you love
0: um i've never read any abnett's fiction but i i remember reading all the comics that he and uh lanning used to write back in the days both some of the brit comics and when he went sort of more u.s mainstream for a while before he returned to uh warhammer um and in the early warhammer fiction days there were some pretty notable writers um kim newman wrote under i think under for for some of the early warhammer books so I think he had um, the, va- the Vampire Genevieve series and the Drakenfels books uh, was, was Kim Newman. So there's some really good writers in there. Although I guess there's so much product, it's hard to tell what's worthy of reading in, in the sort of the Warheimer 40k or, or. Um, <laughs> But I guess uh, that's right. You know, just be receptive to stuff and, and you never know what Christ might cross your path. What's a recent guilty pleasure, Jeff, or what you might have thought was a guilty pleasure that really worked for you? for me yeah i was just thinking in terms of like as long as our minds are being opened up to, to new stuff <laughs> um a guilty pleasure in terms of what Oh something that you didn't think you would like or something you said oh you had sort of dismissed but you just kind of saw it anyway and then you kind of really enjoyed it after all
1: oh gosh um oh okay the dungeons and dragons movie oh really okay <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody assumed I was going to want to see this thing. And I'm like, I have no interest in seeing this. Like I, I cause I'm a, I'm a big D and D player, but I don't give a shit about the official lore. <laughs> like, and I, and actually I think a lot of like, I think a lot of kind of fifth edition dungeons and dragons, fantasy lore, just like, it's not really what I'm interested in. So when the movie came out, I'm just like, I don't care about this thing. I'm not going to go see this thing. But people kept saying, like, no, Jeff, Like, you really need to see it. It's really fun. And I saw it recently, and I was like, oh, yeah, that was a good time. I really enjoyed it.
0: There you go. Right, right. My recent thing that I didn't think I was going to like, but I really enjoyed, was the Star Trek Progeny uh, Prodigy, which is the animated series it did for younger kids on Nickelodeon. But I actually think it's the best of recent New Trek, other than potentially Strange New Worlds and um, – the other animated series, Lower Decks. So it, re- it really is a good trick. I'm not as enamored of like Discovery or the recent Picard revival. Um, so this one I really enjoyed was, was Prodigy. So um, what I will say though, something that I recently just
1: adored is the movie Bo is Afraid. Mm. It's the new Ari Aster film, the guy who made Hereditary in Midsummer. Mm-hmm. and Midsummer. And it's three hours long. <gasps> and I saw it in the theater. Um, opening weekend on a Friday. And then I saw it again three days later. Um, And it is a three hour long, um, um, surrealistic, dark comedy horror about a man with extreme anxiety, trying to get to his mother's house. And, the entire movie is basically a person with high anxieties. What uh worst case scenarios all constantly coming true. It's this heightened reality where everything that you're afraid of is happening and it's worse and it goes worse than you could imagine constantly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not for everybody. I I would not just recommend this <laughs> like whole, like whole cloth to most people, but I adored it.
0: So, so clearly CBT would not work for Bo in this case, right? <laughs> right,
1: right. Well, Bo is receiving therapy, but it's not working for reasons you'll discover when right, you right. watch it. Well, right.
0: I remember you just saying that CBT, one of the things 10 is, was imagining the worst case scenario and then put gaming yeah. it out.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> What's funny,
1: though, is I'm also um, I'm also in the process of becoming a certified sex therapist and what's great too is like, so CBT in the therapy world is um, cognitive behavioral therapy, but also when you're becoming a sex therapist, you have to become very kink focused as well. And CBT also means something else in the kink world.
0: <laughs> 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 hey, there, there you go. So tangent. look it up people, look it up. Oh <laughs> don't, <laughs> <Or no. laughs> either
2: way. Exactly. You don't want that in your Google history. <laughs> unless, you do, unless you do want it in your yeah, Google history. You in go. which case, don't do it on your work machine.
0: <laughs> right. There you go. So uh, uh, this week we're reading, as I mentioned before, Lloyd Alexander's uh, The Book of Three. Uh, Jeff, I know that some of our listeners have been uh, uh, asking us for uh, story summaries. So I think you uh, came up with one, right?
1: Yeah, I found one on a website that seems to be for um, kids who want to like just cheat and be able to read a plot synopsis. So here is a, um, this is from gradesaver.com and here is the um, little four paragraph synopsis that I found on here. Taryn, an assistant pig keeper decides to pursue the oracular pig Henwin after she escapes her enclosure. On his way, he and Prince Gwydion are captured by an evil enchantress named Akron and are put into the dungeons of the Spiral Castle. A girl named Elanwy, who is a self-proclaimed niece of Akron, helps Terran escape after she drops her golden sphere into his cell. Elanwy steals a magical sword called Durnwin on their way out, and as they emerge into the woods, the castle collapses. It is revealed that the castle fell due to the loss of the sword we misunderstood Terran's request and didn't free Gwydion, who Terran assumed was in the next cell, but instead freed um, Flam. They all mourn the death of the prince. Terran changes the plans of his quest and wants to warn Cerdathil of the Horned King's armies instead of searching for Henwin. They are guided by Gurgi, a so-called what-is-it. The group encounters a few bumps along the way, but they manage to maneuver themselves out of the problems they face through the help of people and creatures they meet along the way. They manage to find Henwyn through the help of Gurgi, and they are accompanied by a dwarf guide named Doly. Terran saves the life of a Gwythaint fledgling despite Doly's warnings. The deadly bird escapes, and then Henwin vanishes. The Horn King and his army approaches Kerdathel and Terran rushes to care whilst catching the attention of the king. He draws he tries to draw a Dernwin but is stopped by magic. Suddenly a man appears and speaks a word that burns the king. When Terran wakes up, Ellen explains everything that has happened since. The prince, Gwydion, didn't die, but had learned to understand the heart of all the creatures and had found out the name of the horned king. And when he muttered his name, the king died. The group were rewarded for their efforts
0: with gifts. There you go. So, kids, that's a guaranteed B. If you add some extra <laughs> flavor on it, you might even get an A. <laughs> <laughs> but now in the age of ChatGPT,
1: kids are not going to gradesaver.com to no. figure this stuff out. No, They're just asking no. ChatGPT to do it. Right,
0: right. Um, so there you go. Um, and, uh, let's get a high Gaxian word of the week. I actually kind of like your word there, Jeff. So why don't you, uh, put that one out there? I had
1: offered two up. So which one are you referring to? I'm thinking
0: of the, uh, I think. So.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. So cantref, cantref is a medieval word for a, um, Welsh division of land. And it is found on page 15 of my edition where it says, um, in the plural form. As I have explained to you before, Dalbin went on, and have and you have likely forgotten, Pradane is a land of many cantrives, of small kingdoms and many kings. There you so cantref,
0: Yeah, I could definitely see Gygax using like one of like the sort of like the sort of south southern free kingdoms that you know that in the world of Greyhawk would be like the cantref of so, such and such. I could see that happening.
2: A um, thousand percent, yes. Right.
0: Uh, Any words that jumped out at you, Becky, or is that a pretty good one for for us?
2: I think that's a really good one, but I think that from your um, initial summary of the plot,
0: I think that nothing hits better than the word oracular. Mm. Yeah. Who who wouldn't want an oracular pig? (laughs) Uh, So before we go into the library and discuss uh, the book as book... Let's all uh, show each other which editions of the book we're working with. Becky, what are you working with? So
2: this is what I'm working with. This is the third impression of. Ooh, see the publisher, the Fontana Lions edition. Uh, okay. This or, edition,
0: lion for their logo
2: that's right uh this yeah. edition was published and the year i was born and i think bought by my father the year i was born this is my childhood copy that i read when i was about six wow. or seven and
0: it's actually got Henwen on the cover I mean, it has well got gergi Henwen on the on, cover yeah, gergi, gergi sitting, sitting on, the back on it
1: of Hen- yep yeah and gergi looks like a little monkey man mm-hmm. yep. there you go yeah that's <laughs> a great cover tights.
0: there you go <laughs> how about you jeff yeah.
1: I've got the um, the kind of classic Dell paperback from the early '80s. Um, this one is the fifth printing from 1983. We've got um, we've got Taren clutching a dagger as he sees the Horn King rearing up on his black steed, holding his sword aloft. Um, and the cover is by Jean Leon Hunes humans I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it I also listened to the audiobook which was narrated by James Langton
0: there you go um, this is one of my uh, sidewalk finds I had read this book before as a youngster but um, I found its on one of the stoops of my neighborhood so it's the 2006 uh, square fish edition with a cover by David Wyatt and it's got the horn King and some of the cauldron born on horseback and Terran hiding behind a tree or oh, in this case he's a redhead and i really picture him as having black hair um so there he is and he looks a little younger here he looks like he's 11 or 12 and i again picture him like around 13 or 14 in the books um so there we go we have these editions. and so becky so you've said that you read this as a child how did it hold up to you i was worried about that i won't lie um
2: but luckily for me i had read it about a year or two ago to my son it was one of the books that we've read together. Um, and I've got this This book actually comes from the boxed set of, I think, f- all five. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised when I read it. As I said, I've revisited some childhood books and they have not held up. But actually, it's very clearly a YA book, um, you know, so I'm not expecting some of the levels of complexity necessarily that I'd see in more adult fiction. But I thought it held up incredibly well. I thought there was some really great storytelling. I thought the characters were still really, really strong. And, you know, the, the thematic elements of the Welsh myth done really, really nicely. So, yeah, I felt that it held up
0: brilliantly. Actually, I was mm-hmm. slightly and how, 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 did, how did your son enjoy it?
2: Oh, he, well, I think we're on the fourth book now. So he, oh, he so must have go. enjoyed it <laughs> enough to keep going.
1: Amazing. In our patron book club before this, one of our patron members, Deimos, is a huge fan of this series. And he's also been reading the stories to his kids. And he was telling us that the fourth book is the one that he was most excited to read to his kids, because he was saying that the fourth book is all about accepting failure and trying to be okay with failure. I've, n- I've not read any of these books. This is my first time reading any of them, but um, but yeah, I thought that, I, I thought, and he was very excited about reading it to his kids. And he also said that he thinks a great way to read these books if you haven't read them as an adult is if you have kids to read them to your kids.
2: I think so. Right. And I think as well, because obviously I read other books to my children all the time. And I think that they this stands up incredibly well. The whole series stands up incredibly well to modern YA fantasy fiction. In fact, slightly better than a lot of other modern YA fantasy fiction. So that was also very, very cheering.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I was particularly struck on this reread that, uh, and I know, Jeff, we have some different impressions, but um, I was struck by how um, ilanwi was a, a very fully realized character. Not always uh, someone that you want to be around because she could be a bit of a chatterbox or, or, or you know. Um, but, and that Terran is... Um, He's got these sort of regressive attitudes, but those are kind of attitudes like a 12-year-old boy would have sometimes towards, (laughs) you know, you girls, you know, kind of thing. Uh, It's not, um, you know, for a book that's written in 1964, it's not regressive as a whole, which is, you know, a concern, you know, sometimes.
1: I don't think so either. And even even the things I did notice are kind of nitpicky. Um, and one of them is, so really, I only really noticed two things. One is that at one point somebody dismisses her as a girl with a sword, but of course they're going to dismiss her as a girl with a sword. So like that didn't bother me. But then the thing that did kind of bug me a little bit is at the end where everybody gets like the really exciting gift. She just gets like a pretty ring. Yeah. Like somebody else gets the power to turn invisible and somebody else like people are getting like really substantial, important things. And, oh, here's something pretty for you. But like other than that, like it's 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 I think very good for something written in 1964. And as Becky said, even better than a lot of things that are coming out in 2023.
0: Mm mm-hmm.
2: Mm hmm. Yes, I think so. I think as well, reading the character of Alon Ray, and I'm pleased you reminded me it's written in 1964, because I don't think that it's aged, actually, when you read it through now. I don't think I get a sense of this being something that's much, much older than a, than a contemporary book. And I, I know that you haven't read the later books, and I don't want to spoil you for those, but I think that the later books really dig very deeply into what is her role what does she see her role yeah. as what does she want her role to be um and and what does the role that other people have mapped out for her and how she responds to that uh, and there's an entire book pretty much based on what's her trajectory and what she wants and and that sort of thing so i think that it, it's very sophisticated for its time and sadly quite sophisticated
0: compared to some modern books as you say right and she's already is already sort of um Foreshadowing, right? Because she's already pressing back, it's like, "Oh, no, I don't want to go back to my relatives. They hardly know me." Blah blah blah. You know, they sent me, they sent me here in the first place to Akron's castle, right? So, um, so there's a little bit of that, and and you get a sense of her trying to set things in place in the world, or set boundaries, realize her place in the world that Taryn is trying to do too, but he's coming at it with um, maybe less sophistication than she is, right? And which is again that sort of age, like exactly that age when girls are just a little bit hit of voice, like in terms of their emotional and social development like a couple years ahead it seems to me so i think it's very realistic in that regard too in terms of like where they are developmentally
2: i think she's a very rich character and also in the sense that she's not always likable Mm -hmm. some she kind of flits very much between being very likable and um somebody who you can really imagine um at least wanting to agree with um and then and then she can be incredibly rude and dismissive and unpleasant and that's why i mean i think she feels like a very well-rounded very (laughs) well-realized
0: female character for the 1960s she's always saying like you're you're not doing bad for an assistant pig keeper (laughs) you know it's like oh you don't have to be very quick but you know as as an assistant pig keeper not that there's anything wrong with it (laughs) but she's also incredibly brave
2: and um you know and and very thoughtful and kind at times Uh, yeah i I just think she's a great character Right.
1: Yeah, and very clever, mm-hmm. and is and is the main reason that they even get out of a of, re- of a very dire predicament as well. Um, yeah, I I think that um, a lot of the characters in this story are people who have a really kind of firm hook that the writer is kind of hanging his hat on, and um, and that can really kind of become a shorthand for the character. But also, I think the characters all very firmly themselves. And no matter what the situation is, they're still seeing it from their very perspe- from their very unique perspective.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think a lot of this book, and again, I think later in the series, it also comes in in later books, so I don't want to preempt that. It's A lot of it is young characters confronting their poor beliefs. Um mm-hmm. and their prejudices and having those overturned. And I think that Elanway sits there having some prejudice about Taryn because he's a pig keeper. Taryn sits there having prejudices about her because she's a girl. And then Taryn has an absolute butt-ton of prejudices about Gergi when Gurgi first turns up. And watching those get flipped on their head and Taryn's journey through that is is also really excellent.
1: And speaking of prejudices, I want to talk about the prejudices I have against having just read this, but that have shifted since my last conversation. So I think people who, um, because you and Hoy both read this as a kid, and in my experience in our patron book club is that the other people who had also read this as a kid had a little bit of emotional protection against the thing that I was annoyed by, uh, which is that having read this for the first time at the age of 43, I was like, this is a huge Lord of the Rings knockoff, and every and as I'm reading, I'm just like, okay, so clearly Gwydion is Aragorn, and clearly like the unassuming pig keeper is the unassuming Hobbit. And clearly, the 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 weird uh, creature that speaks about itself in third person, who they're not sure if they can trust or not, who has to guide them through the wilderness, like Gollum is Gergi. And I also just found Gergi to be really annoying. Um, I just didn't enjoy Gergi's character, and every time he's like doing scrunchings and munchings, I'm just <laughs> like, oh, like, and he he was he felt like a Furby to me um but i but i also understand after having had the patron book club conversation that these books are very different ultimately and the directions they go are very different than the lord of the rings and does some and accomplishes a very different kind of thing than the lord of the rings is seeking to accomplish but just reading this book alone without the context of the rest of the series and not having grown up with it it was just very to the forefront to me it just it felt like it was just like a discount lord of the rings for kids
2: uh well i'm i'm not gonna lie and say that i don't agree with you i think that it's absolutely got a huge amount in common with Lord of the Rings. Um, Funnily enough, as I was reading it, I was thinking it's got a lot in common with Star Wars Um, and this, and so many other fantasy novels have taken the path of a young person of low status in a village and the journey they go on and what happens and how they become a hero at the end of it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to dispute any of that. I think you're right on the nose. I think it does go in a very different direction afterwards, but the first book, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, I think that points a lot to. I mean, I want to get to like Campbell because I think Campbell is ultimately overdone and probably not accurate as a whole. But um, it does point to that it oftentimes comes down more to execution than uh, plot specifics or trappings, I think, right? In terms of how you tell a story, right? And so, you know, oftentimes when we're doing anything, whether we're do, uh, creative, we're always worried that, are we doing something derivative? Or it's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But just do it anyway if there's something that speaks to you and then just try to do it well right and that's maybe the thing that you need to do you need to work through it especially
1: that. if you're bringing something new to it i think yeah. if you're going to do a cover of a song or you're yeah. going to remake a movie yeah. you know bring bring your vision to it bring what you think is is the new perspective to this thing I think really successfully uh, like I, like Elric is a total Conan ripoff and Elric is the complete opposite of Conan too, in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. which makes it a really fascinating building on of something that came before. Um, But like when you do like the, the 1990s, um, um, shot for shot remake of Psycho, it's like there's, there's, I really felt like there was no purpose for that. And I'm like, why am I even watching this? Oh, right probably now? I'm a tec- not getting anything from this. A
0: technical exercise almost in that point. Um, exactly. So, Becky, I have a question which I'd asked one of our uh, members of our reading group. So, I was not, I did not remember that Lloyd Alexander is actually not British. He's actually an American writer. Um, he had spent time in Wales during World War II um, and fell in love with the country and sort of researched uh, the myths and legends. So, how um just both you personally and if you have a sense in general in the UK of how well this book is received and and you know did people feel like eh you know it's just like some person from the colonies trying to do things and not quite getting it right like like you know like when they do spaghetti westerns it's not quite right it's okay it's fun but it's not quite the thing you know um and what was your impression in that
2: i think that's a great question and i think my answer to that question is going to have to be slightly tied up in the fact that i first encountered this novel as a very young child and I just assumed the writer was British because I was British and I was reading a book. Um, and I had, I think, you know, at the age of seven, I probably assumed that everybody who wrote all books was British. <laughs> <not worth> <laughs> yeah, anyway. Unless they were French, in which case it's not worth reading Yeah, unless so, they were French. But yes, so I don't think it had occurred to me as a child, as a child to even think about um, uh, the nationality of the writer. I think that this is a book which is... there's. You, in Britain, there is going to be people of a certain age who remember this book and who have very fond memories of it and who still read it, maybe read it to their children. But it's not a book which I would say is kind of in the popular consciousness as other books are today. Um, mm. Certainly, I mean, obviously the big hitters, as you've already mentioned, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but I wouldn't even say um that it would be in the popular consciousness like something uh i was just thinking of the worst witch series by jill murphy that's a very popular yeah. children's series over here or narnia. or narnia so it doesn't have the sort of iconic status of those you know you wouldn't go into a bookshop and think oh you know i i've got a, a an eight-year-old in my life i'll pick them up a, a set of the Chronicles of Narnia, you wouldn't go into them and think, oh, I'll pick up a set of the the Chronicles of Pride. So firstly, I think that's an absolute shame because I think that actually it is a cracking good series and better than a lot of modern things. So I wish actually that it had um, a bigger status, I think, in British culture than it does. I think it's relegated to um, people like me who've read a lot of science fiction and fantasy from a very young age will have read this book and that those people will probably be in their 40s and it'll probably be because their father bought it for them um, back in the 60s and the 70s. Um, So I think that's a real shame. Uh, On the reread, um, when I reread it, I went and looked up Lloyd Alexander on Wikipedia um, when I read it to my son, actually. Um, and I was shocked to find out that it was written by an American. Um, I had not I mean, I'm not Welsh. I will say that. So if, if there is a mangling of Welsh mythology in here, I would not have picked that up because that's not my culture. that um, That's, you know, that's somebody else's culture also. Um, but I could not tell that it, it was American um, and written by an American author. It felt a lot to me like other books that are British of that age and that genre. So I suppose I'm thinking of things like The Box of Delights or The Children of Green No or The Worst Witch in Narnia. It's got that sort of feel to it as opposed to something like um, The Belgariad, which I also read a few years after this. I started picking up and reading The Belgariad series and that that felt much more um American I suppose in its execution and this feels to me
0: and you think that there is I uh, guess I mean you can't tell with publishing you never know you think that um I mean your 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 children obviously love this you, you think this was just sort of hyped up a little bit that it would be received well uh you know in the current uh you know young readers in the UK or is it something that is just more of a piece oh yeah you know, just another sort of fairy tale thing and you know that's just kind of to us, to maybe, you know, Europe is so, as common in the background as, I say, a tale of adventure on the frontier in the U.S. might be. And so it's just one more, you know, book of that type.
1: I think, And I'd like to weave another question into that, yeah. too, which is also, what role do you think the um, Black Cauldron cartoon had to do with the changing of its status as well?
2: Yeah, so I think the, my answer to the kind of the first part of the question is that after The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were published... Then I think there was a huge appetite in the British consciousness for for similar stories. But going back to your early point, Jeff, this feels like a Lord of the Rings knockoff. Well, I can I can give you a list of long as long as my arm of Lord of the Rings knockoffs, because there was a huge appetite for them. Um an appetite that was not sated, I think, by the Silmarillion, um, which is something of a very different uh order than Lord of the Rings. But that yeah. that sort of fantasy rollicking adventure tale, I think that at that At the point that Lord of the Rings was so popular, publishers wanted a lot more of that. People wanted a lot more of that. And I think this would have been probably hitting at around about that time. So I wonder partly if this sort of road, that early crest of the wave, that people wanted a sort of a a light, as you say, a a Lord of the Rings for children. Um, I do wonder that. Um, I think that in relation to The Black Cauldron, honestly, I had almost no awareness of it as a child. And I was quite surprised growing up. I've never seen it. I've never yes, seen neither it. Neither have I, actually. No. <laughs> I was quite surprised growing up when I found out about it. Because I remember thinking, oh, a Disney film called The Black Cauldron. That's interesting because I've just been reading these um, Chronicles of Prydain books. And being utterly surprised and shocked because my conception of Disney was... Beauty and the Beast, or, I think that's probably a bit too late, actually. It was, I'm thinking at my age, it's probably more Snow White or Robin Hood or, you know, that sort of thing, was my conception of um, Disney. And the Pride Dane books are quite dark, and they get progressively darker as they go. I mean, everyone talks about, say, Harry Potter kind of ages up and gets darker, and that's true. But my recollection is that as the Prydain books go along, and Taran becomes more adult, the problems that he is facing and dealing with, I mean, he basically ends up... Oh, I don't want to spoiler anybody. Am I allowed to say what happened? Yeah, sure. I But he basically ends up becoming um, one, uh, almost like a war leader. So his trajectory in that sense is quite adult and quite dark, you know, where Harry Potter's still at school by the last book. Yes, he's fighting bad guys, but he's still a school child. Taron becomes like a war leader at points in the narrative and adults treat him like a war leader. And he has responsibilities of going into battle and things like that, which is far more akin, if you think about it, to um, a lot of what happens in The Chronicles of Narnia. And so it's interesting Mm -hmm. to me that you say he was in... uh, wales during world war ii because i do wonder if people writing fantasy fiction at this time were very uh, influenced by the war as we know that tolkien was mm. Mm. Um, and i think yeah. you can, there are huge themes about battle um throughout the chronicles of narnia and rea- the reality of the chronicles of narnia is that they take children and they turn them into soldiers i mean that's where lucy and edmund and the others end up they are fighting a war and they are fighting a war with weapons and with people dying and you know i think the the because the, those are themes of world war 1 and world war 2 are just yeah. redolent throughout all of these books and so i was very yeah. surprised when i heard that disney had done a black cauldron movie because i was like well that seems quite far away from the world of snow white i mean mm-hmm. pride Day is quite dark as a, as a, as right. a world <laughs>
0: Right, and even in this very first book, it's quite dark. Right? I mean yeah, it introduced is. to the cauldron born the, the yeah. their sort of fear as they're being chased through the night and, and like trying to keep up the pace and trying to stay ahead of them, and of course, the sacrifice of the of the man and sort of the wicker the wicker man fire you know and and I was saying also in mm. the sort of um patron chat the the fight scenes are are visceral they're not just like oh and then they clash swords It's there's there's like real fear of death and you can sort of sense how the, the the characters are placed like in the in the scene in a way that's at least as successful as a lot of the sort of mid-tier sword and sorcery maybe not at the level of say robert e howard in terms of the battle hmm. scenes you know but as successful as a lot of the mid-tier sword and sorcery that we've been reading for this project jeff i would say um yeah
2: I think as well, there's something also here in the character of Taron, um, as you say, I've, I've always imagined him to be sort of 13, 14 when I read it. But there's a point in the narrative. So firstly, he's obviously um, completely overwhelmed when he meets Prince Goodian for the first time, who is this incredibly heroic character. And Taron reacts to him as though very quickly sort of pledging a sense of allegiance to him very quickly, uh, to the point where, he, as you say, he... Um, stops looking for Hen Wen and decides that he, a 13-year-old boy, is going to take on Prince Gwydion's mission after he has died to get to Caer and give him this important information about the Horned King and the Cauldron Born coming for them. And he's a child who takes on an incredibly adult responsibility and feels it's his responsibility. Now, he's got that bard with him whose name, I'm afraid, uh,
0: Flutter Flam. Fluter Flam. Yeah, flute flam. <laughs> who is an
2: adult, who is a, an adult and a prince, who does not show the same leadership and doesn't seem to have the same sense of responsibility that Taron does. It's Taron the <laughs> child who is fulfilling an adult's war mission to mm-hmm. warn the castle of an approaching um, threat. And I just think that there's, yeah. there's something very kind of... That there is a darkness in there about asking children to grow up before their time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I like that. Moving this into a um, gaming conversation. Um, so, this book did come out prior to Dungeons and Dragons. It um, is not listed in the Appendix N. So, it's not a book that Gary Gygax specifically cites as being inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons. However, in the 1981 Dungeons and Dragons basic box set, in the recommended literature for that box, this is included in that. Um, So I'm curious how you see the Chronicles of Prydain and or specifically the Book of Three, what role you see that um, playing in the development of this game that we, this (laughs) hobby that we have
2: no sure sure i think part of it is that one of the wonderful things as a child about the book of three is that it has a very very clear linear mission path mm. there's a very clear setup in the way that taron is thrown into the adventure so there's a very clear starting point this important oracular pig goes missing he is in charge of it he has to go and find it so i think there's a wonderful um uh, way of Booting him into the adventure. So I think, and it's an unusual way. It's not you go into a tavern, but it's much more like, as you said already, the kind of the Frodo way of the problem just came to him and sat in his lap and he had to go forth. So I think that it's it's got all of the kind of the classic milestone elements I would say I hesitate to mention Joseph Campbell because like you I think that that's, that's that's a flawed proposition but it has a very clear linear path for taking a character who is um, young low status has an ordinary life in a village and putting them on the path to becoming an adventurer and then a hero and I think that's what's nice about it you can break the book down into very clear beats from how he gets to point the the point starting point all the way through to kind of adventurer, hero, and getting involved in the bigger politics. And I think because it's a children's book, and it's really short, those beats are just very clear, very nicely laid out, and you can see that trajectory. And I think that if you are somebody, and obviously whether we railroad people or whatever, however you want it, there's, there's a nice linear progression here that you can see how that might map out.
1: Mm-hmm. I would also add that um, I know that Gary Gygax has stated that the influence for the bard is Silver John by Manly Wade Wellman, which we've read. And okay, I can I can see it. But um, at no point does Silver John identify self-identify as a bard. And honestly, I didn't think that I was going to come across a musician adventurer who self-identified as a bard in pre-Dungeons and Dragons literature. Right, it makes a lower role. Fails
0: a lower role, but makes (laughs) a (laughs) lower
1: Yeah, I I really thought that was going to be something that would exclusively exist in a post-D&D world. So I was quite surprised to find this character behaving as he was and identifying as he was.
2: For me, that's actually the, the least surprising thing about this book. (laughs) Um, And I'll just from my perspective, because um, obviously this book is hugely influenced by Welsh law and Welsh mythology and the concept of a bard and bardic college. And all of those things are things which are absolutely, you know, writ large through Welsh mythology, Welsh culture, Taliesin Mm. the Bard. You know that that character, all of those sorts of things. You know, so for me, that was almost the the, the chunk of it which cleaved co- very closely to the Welsh mythological tradition that it was coming from.
1: Interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I definitely do not have any solid footing in the the world of Welsh mythology.
0: Right, right. Uh, those are the Evangeline Walton adaptations of the Mabinogion. We should probably read too at some point because those were in the Valentine and Fantasy series.
1: Yeah, I've heard those are fantastic.
0: Yeah. Um, I think a couple of our uh, list, uh, patron uh, in the book club mentioned, and I think that as far as gaming, I think this book is quite successful that even though Taryn is nominally the protagonist, every character uh, in the, the sort of the eventual party that we have gets to do something, gets to have their moment. Is, is critical and Taryn even admits at the end that he didn't do it or he feels that he didn't do anything that everybody else did different and contributed to the success of their mission. And so Ai we, she's, you know, very clever. Um, she sort of sees things in a t- way that Taryn can't see, uh, you know, uh, Gergi, uh, you know, with whatever miles you take with him, he's still, you know, like a great scout and, you know, as a loyal, you know, man, dog or whatever he might be, dog, man, um, Fluter flam is you know hilarious and even he has his moments he's still quite brave I mean he, he's he stretches the truth but he's still quite brave and he's quite loyal right uh Dolly the the non-invisible dwarf right they each get to do their thing and so it's a, it's a sort of a, a good lesson if you're running a party saying like okay here's your moment and so that if you have potential like people who might want to hog the scene a little bit say, no nope, no nope, this is Dolly's moment let's let Dolly play it out <laughs> and you know um so I think that's a and I think bX like quite successful in that regard, right? The basic expert DD. And so this is I could see this is like a, a very BX is a very good way to sort of tell a, a predane type story as opposed to A D D, which is a little bit more sword and sorcery and grimy in a way. Yeah.
1: That's fair. Um I think some of the things that I got from this that I think would be cool for gaming is, I mean, as I'm mentioning earlier about how the characters all have like the 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 character hook that you can hang your hat on. And it just reminds me of um how if you don't have a character idea in place, like roll on a random table somewhere for like a character idea or a personality style. And like like Elon We could just be talkative. Right. And like now you've got a whole like just that one word alone right. now J-box, gives you right. <laughs> Yeah. Now it gives you something to really, really work with. But also a thing that I really like about um or, or maybe, let me rephrase that. A thing that I saw in this story that I see in a lot of sword and sorcery is a the you're captured and taken to a dungeon, and also b the um, the we help the injured animal, and that gives us a boon later. I think both of those things are things that are I think dungeon ma- I think game masters. It's, I think we, we, it's really important for us to be able to kind of throw those kinds of things out there for the characters to interact with however they want. But, um, but like I was just gaming in, um, I was just playing a game as a player recently where we were all captured and we were being taken to a dungeon. And I just said to all the other players, like, let's just like let them take us there so that like we can be in the dungeons and like start from there. But like, of course, like, you know, most modern DD players aren't gonna have that <laughs> so like they want to just like start a fight and like get out of there right away so like i didn't get to have that that thing that i was looking for um
0: it's true I'm all, it's like almost every dnd player would rather have a tpk than get taken prisoner um, <laughs> yeah so yeah. You, you almost have to like create a social contract with the players like um the only adventure i can think of is that the, was it the fourth in the a series where you start as prisoners right mm-hmm. um you always have to create a social contract and maybe it's easier in a story type games like okay i promise if you let your characters get taken prisoner i'm not going to hose you you're going to be in a very difficult situation but it will it'll pay off in the terms of the game right like it'll, you'll come out of it having a good time and, and your characters aren't just going to automatically be hosed because they were prisoners right um because that's what D&D, because d and is so much about a game about accumulation of stuff. Accumulation. Mm. It's a very American capitalistic in that way, right? We accumulate <laughs> yes. stuff, and we don't want it taken away from us. Right? And so you almost have to like create the social contract. You are not your items. Right? Your character is not their items, right?
1: Yeah. So, but Becky, were you coming across anything in this story that you thought would be fun to incorporate into your games?
0: Mm, um,
2: I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about this story is just how terrifying the bad guys are Mm. and they are terrifying. Um, And they reminded me a lot as we talked about Lord of the Rings a lot, but they reminded me of how frightening I found the Nazgul when I was a child. Um, And one of the things I think is so nice about having those familiar beats of you help the animal and there's the lovely point where they get the sense of when they get, when Melengar takes them into the sort of the realm where the animals have got sanctuary medwin medwin and the um the kind of the sense of relief as a as a reader that you feel when you know that they have reached a place of relative safety they are going to have to leave it but for now they're actually safe and that that visceral sense of relief you get is because lloyd alexander does such a beautiful job of making the bad guys absolutely absolutely terrifying and i think that there's yeah. something in there about having a bad guy who is really terrifying and having that really pay off you know I th- yeah, you're absolutely right in kind of a, a dnd context you know you want to be able to beat things with your plus one sword and you want to be able to accumulate the treasure but there is something so delicious when you can play a game where you feel completely outclassed by the mm. bad guys and when they are chasing you down getting to Medwin's realm, that feels like a win because you have a moment to recover and and lick your wounds and get something. And so I think that changing the stakes, it it changes the stakes of what feels like a success. And I really enjoyed that bit of it. Um, And I think there's all sorts of clever things that he does. I think there's a scene where they have to cross a river with the horses to get away from the bad guys, um, to to get away from the cauldron-born and the horned king. And and also that sense of how implacable these things are. So yeah, I think he does several things which I'd like to incorporate into my games because I think that I tend to kind of, uh, my game's that I play most and certainly the games that I design most sit more in the horror space. And that, that honestly, that surprises me because as a child, I read nothing but fantasy as an adult, I seem to write nothing but horror, but that, that, that something about that creating, creating a foe, which completely outclasses you, which feels totally implacable, um, which also feels, to a certain extent, almost omnipresent when you have the Gwythings, you know, when when you know you've been seen by something which is going to go and report back and there's nothing you can do about it. Something yeah. is coming for you. I think that, for me, what I would like to take from this book is that kind of creating a a foe which makes you feel as terrified as I did when I was seven and I was reading this book or I was reading about the, Naz- the witch king hunting Frodo in the Shire and how stressed I was reading
0: it. <laughs> I feel like maybe this was in some offshoot Lovecraftian game, and maybe this is something that um, you may remember, or, or sort of half-baked idea is that you could sort of um, mechanize this by giving characters a point for fleeing, like a token or something like that. Like Normally where you give a luck point, you don't give it for succeeding in the battle, so you can get those and accumulate them so that you have them for the final big confrontation at the end. Right. So you can say, "Okay, oh, hey, if you flee, I'll give you a token point right now or, or whatever it is, or the characters, know. it's like, Oh yeah, it doesn't make sense for me to fight the Nazgul on Weathertop, Right. You know, <laughs> right. Or I go cross the Ford, I uh, cross the river here or the Ford before Rivendell. So um, a way of mechanizing that uh, not completely mechanical, but lightly um, to, to, get that and to get people to think okay let's it, sometimes it's better this question is the better part of valor I'll come back stronger another day you know my characters are, are growing braver or they know more about the world those kind of things like that um, And you know I mean D has the leveling system which is sort of doing that but it's a little bit more abstract than a, like a specific token that would let you do that
1: um, yeah I also think that um, that Lloyd Alexander is accomplishing this uh, this building of tension. In a way that's um, very accessible, like he uses mm. very accessible words mm. to really kind of create this 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 tension, which feels very anti Lovecraftian in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but like when Taryn is first in the forest before he encounters the Horned King, um, there was a sentence that I highlighted that I just loved that just said, "The forest seemed to be holding its breath," mm. and it's it's such a simple sentence. And it's also something that you can understand as an adult. It's something you can understand as a kid, and that that feeling that like suddenly the forest is silent, but that silence like feels profound. And then to have the Horn King emerge shortly after a statement like that, I just thought was really effective.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And just the other thing, like the implacability of the uh, you know being followed by the continent, but they can see them. I think this was in one of the um, Saberhagen books. Remember when they're being pursued? as one. They can see their foe. The foe ha- can't catch up with them, but it's mathematical, right? Like if they can't, you know, the foe doesn't sleep. So if they, you know, if they sleep, then the cauldron board get another eight hours to catch up on them. Yeah. So that kind of feeling of the creeping dread, but then you give them something like a, a Ford, or like something they didn't know, like that the cauldron can only go so far from Annuvin before the, mm. the power of Iran. Sort of fades away, and so they have to turn around. Uh, but you don't necessarily let the player characters know that, unless they have some kind of lore role that lets them know that kind of thing. Um, so that uh, that implacability, that um, that sort of dread, the sort of wearing down of your characters. Obviously, that's done a lot in Call of Cthulhu with sand mechanics. I don't know what, what specific mechanics do you do in, in for Lovecraft-esque and sort of sort of debilitating and creating characters.
2: So Lovecraft-esque is more of a storytelling game, so it, it doesn't really have. Um mechanics for that. What I what this was putting me in mind off more was a game called Don't Rest Your Head um mm-hmm. by Evil Hat, um, which is an indie game which I love. It's quite old now, I think, where there's a dice mechanic. The idea is that you can't fall asleep. Fall asleep, right. You can't <laughs> fall asleep. And what I love about it is that the way the dice mechanic starts ratcheting up the um the stress because in order to get good dice rolls you want to do certain things with your dice mechanic but every time you do that you are increasing the likelihood that you might fall asleep or that something bad will happen but just knowing that because of the way the dice mechanic works you can't keep rolling dice forever without at some point the bad thing absolutely crashing down on your head and i really enjoyed that means of ratcheting up the tension that you are tempted To do something every time, but every time you're tempted to do it, you know that the terrible future is just inching closer and closer and it's inevitable. It's going to happen at some point. And and that kind of sense of do I use my power now? Do I roll this dice now? Is now the time that I want to do that? should i save it to later do i really need to do it now right um and dread's jenga, yeah. right? jenga tower of course just that yeah. sense yeah. of at some point this is all going to come crashing down and you as a player can f- can see that in the way that the system is working i really really love that
0: yeah, yeah that's same. the one thing that D doesn't really do well is sort of um mechanized fear other than like as a saving throw Right, that's that's the well,
1: especially in current versions, where the idea is that you're going to survive everything, and the dungeon master is always going to give you a balanced encounter. Right, that works completely against the um, the the building of tension. But that's the tricky thing is when when you're emulating these kinds of stories. Two things that they have in common is that um, or two things that are commonly happening in these kinds of stories is the main characters don't die. And there's a lot of tension to create both of those things in a role playing game is really hard. So often you have to sacrifice one of those two. Either you're playing in a game where your characters can die very easily, like Call of Cthulhu Mm -hmm. or OSR style games. And in those kinds of games, the tension's really high. Or you do the reverse of that, where your characters are going to survive and you can really like spend a lot of time building your character and really falling in love with the character you're playing and really fleshing out their backstory, etc. But then there's no tension because you know that the Dungeon Master is not going to take away this precious creation you've made.
2: I think I like the games in particular where you know your character has a short shelf life. You know that they are going to die at the end of yeah. this. But what you're mm-hmm. trying to do is push back that... The, that inevitable thing happening and that's what i really yes. like i uh, kind of i really enjoy games to do that i think that D oh damn can i say this i don't think it's a good horror emulator i think it oh, has amazing yeah. bad horrible disgusting creatures and monsters but that's not what makes things horrible that's uh, not yeah. what horror is about horror is about something implacable, something that outclasses you, something you can't do anything about, which will inevitably get you. And it doesn't, it just doesn't do that. So I think to I looking know. to other systems like Don't Rest Your Head or Dread, of course, which yeah. have that built in, that, you know, that that's all right. they do, but they do it, mm, right. chef's kiss, right. perfect.
0: Right, I guess that's the revelation of the original Call of Cthulhu, right? That was the first game yes. system where characters got progressively worse yeah. as you played them, as opposed to improving And of course D and D is all about the improvement. And here in the book we do have the characters leveling up, but there's a cost, right? Like each of the characters as they eventually do, you know, and and some of it's social and some of it is like, you know, losing their safe their safe haven and all those things. So it's I think incumbent on it if you're playing a system that doesn't have those things built in, it's incumbent on sort of the the game master and the players having a good social contract that allows them Mm. to to place the characters in real positions of vulnerability um, and say we're agreed that there's going to be a vulnerability. It may not be death, but there's going to be real vulnerability here, right? And and um, But it's not, as you say, mechanized to really do that efficiently. Absolutely. Mm. Is there any last thoughts that you have there that you w- want to share with us or any projects that you want people to know about, Becky? That, uh- <sighs> We should be on the lookout for. Well, I better, I better pimp my
2: projects, hadn't I? It would be, it would be ridiculous <laughs> yeah. if I failed to do that. Shelf promotion is hard, but I will, I will stick a fork in my leg and do it anyway. So I have <laughs> um, my new game, which will have finished crowdfunding at the point this goes out, but which should be available for pre-orders. is called "Wreck This Deck." It's a solo journaling game about demon summoning. I had this idea many, many years ago. I got a book called "Wreck This." Deck journal if anybody listening to this has heard Reck- yes. reckless journal i have heard of is that a sort of it's something which encourages you to take it's a book and it encourages you to just trash the pages and put coffee stains on it it's, and i think it's all about accessing your creativity and also getting over the transgressiveness of destroying a book that you have bought from a bookshop and i love reckless journal i think it's wonderful and that very heavily inspired my ideas for reckless deck where you take a set of playing cards Um, and you trash them and you put art on them and um, you do little rituals with them and then you journal about it and then you end up with the kind of a deck of physical cards that you have made with demons trapped inside but you as the player actually have a physical deck that you have trashed and you have transgressively destroyed cards in order to make it happen and then you can kind of come back and forth do a bit more journaling put it down ignore it for six months come back pick it up again and just slowly building up this deck of beautifully destroyed cards as you go and um so i've written that as a game and that should be on kickstarter
0: so very cool would well, that be uh, so a deluxe version i presume would have cards but it would also have print in place and you would have some replay value and no things, no no, like no. it's yeah. um, it's
2: a zine it's being done as a zine oh, and yeah. um my good friend liz lovegrove has done a series of original lino print art for the zine, so it was originally as a PDF on itch, but it was so popular, we've decided to turn it into a physical zine. Um, we're going to ask people to buy their own packs of cards. Um, it's going to be quite cheap, I think. I can't remember what the pricing is going to be at the moment, but it's it's going to be it's not going to be kind of a big chunky exciting book. It's going to be more of a zine, um, and the idea is that you don't have print and play. The idea is that you have one deck, and that you just make it worse each time. Um, because oh, really? I, I was reading a thing a very long time ago about somebody who was saying, "Oh, you know, journals and workbooks and all those things—they shouldn't look pristine. They should look dogged, and they should have coffee stains on them. Because they, every time you touch them, there should be some evidence of you using it and changing it and making it more your own. So by the time you finished, it is so thoroughly worn and dogged, um, but it feels like it's absolutely kind of zipping with." kind of your energy if you like and i just thought well, it would be really cool so this this game has one deck and you just keep playing with the same deck and you just make it more and more and more trashed as you go that's the idea <laughs> that's amazing
0: so uh look for that on kickstarter and where else can you be found on social media if you want to be found these days
2: yeah so um the black armada has a website but we also have an itchio store um so if you just google black armada on uh, search up it Black and on itch.io. You'll find a storefront there, but also we have a website. Um, you can also find me at, at Becky Annison on Twitter. Um, I'm also Becky Annison on the Dice Camp instance of Mastodon. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're the places you can find me most.
0: Perfect. Um, we can still be found on Twitter if it still exists at the time of this episode uh, dropping, and that'll be at appendix underscore n. You can also drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. And Jeff, how about our Patreon?
1: Yes, our patrons get to join us for our patron book club recordings beforehand. And today we are joined by Joseph Hoopman, Robert Coleman. Uh, Rick Byrne, Damo Soklos, and Adam Stiers. Thank you for joining us today. We also have two new patrons. Uh, thank you to Edward Roan and Thomas Joseph for be- uh, choosing to become supporters of this show. I'd also like to reach into our hat and um, and give a shout out to a few other patrons. So thank you to Ron Lipke, Ego Orb, Matt Young, Rose City Politics, uh, Christopher Murray, Luana Sayada, Andy Action, Adam Monnier and Lucio Nuthlich Pimentel. Thank you all for your support. We couldn't do the show without you.
0: Love you guys. So, Becky, it's always a pleasure. Hope to have you on in the uh, near nearish, farish feature. No, we'll, we'll go on forever. Um, there you go, everybody. See you in the stacks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Read on. Bye. The library is closed.